right. <clears throat> good morning, transit family. Good morning. Good morning. Feel free to grab your seat. Feel free to stop talking to your neighbor. Well, hey, before we dive in to the message this morning, we have the amazing opportunity to hear from Vera Fernandez with our ministry partner for uh, the nations. Um, if you don't know this, you're monthly contributions of tithes and offerings to our church. We, uh, as a church, give monthly support to For the Nations. So let me tell you a little bit about For the Nations if you are unfamiliar with this ministry. As I forgot to pull it up now, I'm pulling it up now. Uh, Here's the mission of For the Nations. Uh, Their mission is to provide English English language, English language instruction and other educational services that help meet the practical needs of refugees, asylees, and immigrants, and to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Vera today is going to come up and share some amazing things that uh, she and a a group of people with For the Nations are doing to bring healing to this refugee community. Uh, Vera is the trauma recovery director with For the Nations. She brings decades of cross-cultural experience serving with women and children at risk in nations including Ukraine, India, and Afghanistan. So without further ado, let's put our hands together and give Vera Fernandez a transit family welcome. So you can come on down. Thank you. There you go. Mm-hmm. It is a joy this morning for me to come and to be with you all. It truly, um, I truly enjoyed it. It was a joy just to worship with you all this morning. And I'm just looking around at this church. This is my second time here at Transit Church. And I truly am blessed. And I do want to thank Transit Church so much for all your prayers and support to us all at For the Nations DC. And I especially want to thank you also for, we have so many volunteers who come from amongst your congregation and help us with the English classes and with childcare. So thank you so much. We truly appreciate you all. And I have been with For the Nations for almost a year. Um, I serve primarily not teaching English. I work mostly with the women and children and primarily with the Afghan population. Uh, I myself served in Afghanistan for almost two years. Uh, I just truly thank God. It was a privilege from God for that opportunity to be able to serve there. And I served there just prior to, uh, as most of you know, a year and a half, uh, the U.S. evacuated almost 80,000 Afghans into this country. And I was in Afghanistan just prior to that uh, evacuation, prior to that change. And I truly believe in my heart that this was a divine appointment from God that he brought the unreached people to us here in the U.S. Uh, I truly believe that from my heart. And I can say that because firsthand, I served in Afghanistan. And it's not just my own personal experiences. I knew a number of people from America, from Germany, from Brazil, from around the world who were serving in that nation. And I saw not only myself, but all of them, the risks, the sacrifices, and the challenges of serving in that nation. And today, we have thousands of, of, of Afghans in our in the D.C. area, and we do not have to go so far. Uh, we don't have those high risks, and we can reach out to these unreached people right here at our doorstep. So I do believe that the mission field is at our doorstep today. And so I want to thank God for this opportunity. As Pastor Nick, as you shared, I served many years in uh, different nations, and today the Lord has brought me back to Northern Virginia. It's a privilege to be here. 
and to just have an opportunity to reach out to not only Afghans, but people from so many nations uh, in, in this area. I see your congregation today, and I see that there are so many nations represented right here as well, and it's such a blessing to be with you all today. And I just want to share with you briefly that uh, we are planning to have a trauma recovery group at For the Nations. As you can imagine, most of our immigrant families have experienced severe trauma, not only in the nations where they served, but also some, unfortunately, sadly, there are many women and children who are facing trauma even in this country as well. And so we are planning to have a, a group. And briefly to tell you about this trauma group, uh, we will, um, it's, they're going to use the curriculum of the American Bible Society. And these are Bible-based lessons which use um, stories and activities to, for, for participants to engage with God and to engage with each other. And we're running this group primarily so that we can uh, equip the church, we can equip participants to be able to better reach out to our immigrant population. And so if you are able to, we're planning, our next group will be at the end of March. Uh, I have a flyer, so after the church, if you are free, you can, uh, we, I can meet with you. Uh, we're going to have a group every Monday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, in person at Alexandria Presbyterian Church. And um, this group will be for eight weeks. So I know it's a huge time commitment, but if anyone is able to do so, we'd love to have you join our group. And the purpose of our group is, personally, those who, who attend this group, we all have unaddressed trauma to, to various extents. And so it's a time of healing for ourselves personally, but it's also a time that we are better equipped to reach out to, especially our immigrant neighbors who have experienced trauma. So I encourage you to come and thank you once again just for so many who have already, um, I, I see in our congregation some of you who have, hey Evelyn <laughs> and Don, thank you so, so much and for so many others who have already uh, helped us and volunteered with us and I'm just looking forward to partnering more with you all and I just want to say this morning I was just wanting to pray uh, uh, just to thank God for this opportunity and for you all that together we can preach good news to the poor, and we can just see the broken heart. We can bind the brokenhearted and see the captives free. So thank you so much for your Thank you, Vera. Thank you so much. All right, let's put our hands together one more time for Vera. Thank you for sharing. It's amazing the work you guys are doing there for the nation. So um, Jesus, you read Matthew 25, he has a heart for the refugee, for the asylee, and the the immigrant, and he encourages us. He says, doing these acts of kindness, serving the refugee is doing it unto him. And so if, uh, as Vera was sharing, if the Lord put in your heart that you want to get involved in uh, uh, financially supporting for the nations and the work they're doing or volunteering your time, Vera will be in the multi-purpose room. She has a table with more information. Please uh, get to know her, talk to her. And if you have additional time and the Lord's convicted you, uh, in regards to any time you can spend with For the Nations, they are doing amazing work meeting practical needs and sharing the gospel uh, of Christ with uh, those who have come from overseas and are in our midst. So with that said, we're going to pivot now to uh, our sermon series, Ephesians, entitled Between Two Worlds. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. If you have... Um, not listen to last week's message, uh, make sure you go and do that, or at the very least, read Acts 19 
and Acts 20. Because last week we spent uh, a large portion of our time just looking at the origin story of how the uh, church in Ephesus came into being. It was, um, uh, Ephesians isn't necessarily a book, it's the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Ephesus and around Ephesus. Uh, He's writing from prison around 62 AD to churches that he founded uh, uh, from 52 to 55 AD. So about seven years after he was in Ephesus, he wrote this uh, letter. And what we saw with the origin story of uh, uh, Acts 19 and and Ephesus and how the church got started there is um, they knew the price, they knew the cost of the kingdom. That as Paul is writing this letter, they are probably understanding that to be between two worlds being in Christ and also in Ephesus is hard, is difficult. There's persecution. There's financial maybe insecurity. Um, there's uh, being marginalized in the society. Um, and we saw, uh, pretty much concluded our message with uh, looking at in Acts 19 how a riot broke out and people almost lost their lives in response to the gospel advancing in Ephesus. Okay, so as we turn to Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, just want to give you that recap. Um, the Mudgers of Family has a favorite song. Okay, we're hard pivot to the right here, okay? Um, any families here have like, you're, you're like a family song for a season, you know? And, and this isn't a worship song, so don't judge me, but uh, my, my family and I have really uh, enjoyed watching uh, The Mighty Ducks. We didn't watch the trilogy. I don't know if D3 is a good one yet, but one and two. And so um, there's a song that will be sung by somebody in our house, and then it's contagious. And then everybody will start singing it. They'll join in on the song, Right? And so let me prove it to you right here. If I was going to start singing it, you're going to sing it with me. We will, we will. There it is. Yeah. You can thank me. That's stuck in your head the rest of the day. All right? It's contagious. Sometimes there's songs you hear that other people are singing that you just, you naturally, there's something inside you you want to join in on. And the reason I share that is the way the Apostle Paul starts his letter to the Ephesian believers is in song. He just bursts out in praise. Blessed be the name and you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Like he, he does a few kind of greetings, salutations, the Apostle Paul, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and then boom, he just busts out in song and praise. One New Testament scholar said, Ephesians is truth that sings. Truth that sings. And that's what we see uh, today in our text is the Apostle Paul starts out singing. And the big idea of my talk, we'll read the text and dive in, is this, is will we join the Apostle Paul in that song he is singing today? By the Spirit, through his word, fanning into affection, fanning into flame our affection for God, will we join in on that song? And will God, who's worthy of our praise, receive his praise today? So three points of my talk this morning, if you're a note taker, is this. One, we sing to him because we're blessed by him. Two, we sing to him because we belong to him. And three, we sing to him because we're blameless before him. Ephesians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace 
with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You have held nothing back. You who have given us your son, how much more will you also give us all things? And so everyone here today who is in Christ, whether rich or poor, in sickness or in health, in a season of hardship, we can say we are blessed by you. No matter what life is throwing against us, we can say, I am in Christ, and therefore I possess everything I need forever. Thank you, God, that you have anchored our hope. You've anchored our joy securely out of Ephesus and into the heavenly places so that nothing can take that which is most precious to us. Nothing can steal our joy in you. Nothing can take us from your hand. That's the hope. That's the security the blessing we have in you. How could we not sing to you? How could we not thank you? That's who we are, and it's all your work. The greatest exchange of the gospel is we give you our sin, and in return, you give us everything. Would you be magnified, Jesus, today? Oh, help us, God. Open up our eyes. It's all real. It's all true. Help us to see it, God through the midst of our apathy, maybe through the midst of our suffering and our struggles, help us to see you rightly this morning. And when we do, the natural response is an outburst of song, God. So would you receive that today? That's the work of your spirit. Would you be magnified, Jesus? Would you increase and I decrease? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we sing to him because we are blessed by him. In verse 3 of our text, the apostle Paul is writing while imprisoned in Rome. He's in chains. And he's most likely writing to believers who are marginalized in society, who are persecuted, who are hated by the other citizens of Ephesus for their faith in Jesus Christ. And he bursts out in song. In verse 3, he says, blessed, writing from jail. He's not singing in the shower. He's singing in chains. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And that's the correlation we see. Caleb talked about it. We didn't coordinate it, but he, call, he talked about it in the call to worship this morning. Is that the natural response to receiving blessing is returning that blessing with blessing those, praising those, thanking those who have blessed us. We all, this is a universal fact of humanity, right? And let me prove it to you. You all, maybe you're going into work, maybe you're going into a store, and you just being a, a follower of Jesus, someone rich in kindness and selfless love, for three seconds you linger at the door a little bit longer and hold it open because someone's coming behind you, right? Because you're, you're just, you know, a saint, right? That's what saints do. They hold the door open. And so, so someone comes behind you, and you have, to stay, you have to stop for three seconds to open the door, and they walk by, and they don't say thank you. Come on now. Don't, don't leave me hanging. You know what that's like. The audacity. Do they realize what I've done? I've done this for three seconds. And you're not going to acknowledge my presence? You're not going to say thank you for that? Right? Now watch this. This is what Paul is getting at. How much more worthy of God, how much more worthy is he of our gratitude and our thanksgiving when he's held open the door to his presence, to his courts, to his throne, to his, to his table? We'll celebrate that with communion tonight. God's held the door open. And how did that door to the holy of holies get open? Well, what's in the door is the cross of Jesus Christ. The father giving his son 
crushed for your sins, which separated you, but now because they've been transferred to the Son of God, the spotless Lamb of God, you now have 24-7 access. It's an open door to God's presence forever. That is the reality of the gospel, is he's opened the door to his presence, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ that has done that for us. That's how we get to God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody gets through that open door except by me and my sacrifice on the cross. And tragically, what we see, and one of the reasons I'm so excited to dive into Ephesians, is that I fall prey to this, we all fall prey to this, is we anchor our joy in physical blessings, in physical circumstances, like hashtag blessed, right? I'm not judging you if you threw this up on Instagram this week, okay? But when, when do we dish out that hashtag, hashtag blessed? When I got a new car, man, new car, boom, hashtag blessed, right? Roof over my head, oh, new puppy, dog, man, I'm just so blessed by this new dog. You know, I'm not dogging on dogs or whatever. But what I'm saying is our thinking is completely warped. And Paul's, the root of Paul's joy wasn't in physical blessing, it was in spiritual blessings. He says, I've learned the secret to be content. I've learned the secret to be content in plenty, in seasons of plenty, or in want. Because I can do all things in Christ, belonging to Jesus. His, his joy wasn't rooted in Ephesus. His joy wasn't rooted in anything physical. His joy was firmly anchored in what is eternal and transcendent. And so often the gospel isn't our source of joy. Physical circumstances are. And so therefore, if we, what I'm getting at is if we anchor God's blessing to us with wealth and health and security and safety, safety, then when God doesn't give us that, then we can't praise him. We're saying, oh, God's cursed us. God's held back on me. How could God X, Y, and Z, right? And Paul, writing from jail to believers who are going to be in jail and be martyred for their faith, saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've, given, we've been given something far better than anything this world can offer us. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's saying in contrast to this view of God as being uh, uh, cheap and stingy and, and miserly, what we see is Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every. So I'm not going to talk about what yet. We're going to talk about how much. And what Paul is saying, he doesn't say, contrast is the mother of clarity. You're going to see me do this with Ephesians. I'm going to do the opposite so it clarifies it, okay? Paul didn't say, he's blessed us with some of the spiritual blessings, with, uh, there's a limited supply of the spiritual blessings, there's some supply chain issues, there's a lot of Christians, not enough blessings, and COVID happened, and now it's hard to get those blessings. That's not what he says. He says, every single one is yours in Christ Jesus, all of them. God hasn't held back on you one iota of the blessings that he can give to us. There's nothing he's holding back as a father to his kids. And what Paul is highlighting is we worship, we serve a God who's radically generous towards us. How so? God the Father gave up that which was most precious to him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do these blessings flow? The only way these blessings could come to undeserving sinners as if God the Father, who he loved his son from eternity past, gave up his son as a sacrifice for ruined sinners so that those sinners could come home. That's how those blessings came. So the highest price, that which is most precious in heaven, that is what the Father has given us. So if he's given us the, 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 the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, as an offering for our salvation, as a sacrifice to bring us home, then he's given that 
which is most precious to him. And so then the follow-up is this, is what could God the Father give us that would be more valuable to himself, more precious, more costly? Romans 8.32 says this way. Romans 8.32 says it this way. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the idea with that verse is this, is, is this. If we've already gotten the best that heaven can give, everything else is an add-on. If you get Jesus Christ, salvation and an eternal union and relationship with him, everything else pales in comparison to that. God, you can, you can give me plenty, you can give me one, but if I have Jesus, I possess everything I need. My sins forgiven, my future secure, my present dwelling, God with me and me with God by the Spirit. If we've already gotten the best that heaven can give, everything else is an add-on, an added bonus. And so then what are these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? Two things, lots of debate, and I think it's both. I think it's both and not either or. One, some scholars will say that these spiritual blessings are everything that Paul talks about in the next 11 verses. So verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in the Greek. Paul's just busting out in song. And then he talks about um, these blessings, and I believe uh, that these blessings are all the shuns of the Christian faith. All the shuns of the Christian faith. Salvation, redemption, adoption, regeneration, justification, glorification, so on and so forth, right? All those things that are ours in Christ Jesus because of who he is and what he's done for us. And then secondly, well, how do all of those things get applied to our life? Well, they get applied by the Holy Spirit. So the second thing that scholars talk about of what these spiritual blessings are is that th these blessings are the gift of God himself. It's God the Holy Spirit filling the believer, applying the work of salvation to the believer. John Stott says this, every spiritual blessing is every blessing of the Holy Spirit. You can throw up that uh, quote up there. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit, who as the divine executive applies the work of Christ to our hearts. And Charles Hodge says this, these blessings are spiritual, not merely because they pertain to the soul, but because derived from the Holy Spirit, whose presence and influence are the great blessings the great blessing purchased by Christ. And so what I'm getting at is this, is God is the gospel. The greatest blessing that we get through the person and work of Jesus is we get God himself. We get the spirit of Christ dwelling in us and among us for all of eternity. And what that does is it, it anchors our hope and our joy. If God is where our ultimate satisfaction lies, if God is where our ultimate security lies, and uh, that blessing is spiritual. It's in the heavenly places and not located here in a safe in my basement in the physical realm where a fire can take it out or a thief can steal. But if it's anchored somewhere else, then that joy can never be taken from me. That hope can never be taken from me. I can never lose it. It's imperishable, the scriptures say. It's eternal. There's no expiration date. Like any physical blessing you get, any physical blessing that God gives you, it's got an expiration date on it, right? You get that new car, oh, I'm so blessed. Okay, yeah, give that like, I don't know, two weeks. That thing starts malfunctioning, right? Oh, God bless me. Like, and, and God, and, uh, hear me this, Matthew 6. God's a good father. He loves to provide for his kids, right? And so we don't need to be anxious. And God, God's blessings do flow horizontally through physical, absolutely. God loves to provide for his kids, right? But the greatest blessing he's given us is the gift of his son. And so what I'm getting at before we move on to point number two is this. And please write this down. Please Please uh, reflect on this by the Spirit today and, and tonight and this week is, is your joy placed in Ephesus or in Christ? 
Where is your joy located? Where is your hope located? Where is your security located? We're between two worlds. Is it in the things of, as long as everything's going hunky-dory in Ephesus, and there's no economic uncertainty, uh, threat of World War III, another pandemic, so on. So as long as, that, as long as Ephesus is cool, I'm cool. No, no. Or is the source of your joy as a believer transcendent, eternal, right? Can, it, can you transcend above what's happening here and we can still uh, be a calm, anxious presence to the world that is biting their fingernails and they have no source of hope because their source of hope is only horizontal. Ours is vertical. We've seen, like we've encountered the glory of God in his son Jesus. We know that there's a king on the throne. He's coming back to make all things right and we belong with him. Is your joy rooted in Ephesus? Or is it firmly rooted in Christ? Okay, secondly, we sing to him because we belong to him. We sing to him because we belong to him. If we were to ask, well, who gets these spiritual blessings? Is it everyone who's ever existed? Like, like who gets these blessings? And the simple answer, what I've already talked about, is they flow from one person, Jesus Christ, to those that belong to him. 11 times in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, 11 times Paul uses the language of in Christ, in him, in the beloved. And this is the language that theologians call union with Christ. That eternal, irrevocable, covenantal relationship that you have in Christ Jesus. Never to be broken. It's kind of like a marriage, right? Where the two enter into a covenant with one another and the two become one. And I heard a seminary professor say this, talking about union with Christ. It's when one person receives a blessing, the other person, because of that union, that covenant, inevitably they receive the blessing as well. So when Jen gets a gift card to a trendy coffee shop, I get a gift card to a trendy <laughs> coffee shop. When I get a gift card to Thrive Market, which I never have and I never will because don't do that, um, <laughs> Jen... <laughs> Jen gets a gift card to Thrive Market, right? The two become one. And so what, that's like you read Romans 6, talk about baptism. I mean, it's all over Paul's letters. Um, we've been buried with Christ. I've been nailed to the cross with Christ. I'm resurrected with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6, I'm actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places because I belong to him. I'm, I'm in him. I'm in a covenant with him, never to be broken. And so therefore, those that belong to him receive the blessings that he's purchased for them. Okay, but whoa, whoa, let's back up. How did we get to belonging to him? Like, where did this relationship begin? And so I think it was either December or January, I got a call from somebody, and it was awesome. And his name is Ian. You know him. He's a member at a church. And he goes, yo. He didn't say yo. Um, he goes, I just won. I know you're a hockey fan. I just won through the USO uh, Washington Capitals tickets. Do you want to go on this date? Like, he purchased something. He got something, Okay. He won something. And I'll tell you what, these were the best seats I've ever, I mean, they were two rows back from the class behind the net. It, I mean, yeah, it was, like, it was like probably those two tickets were maybe over $2,000 worth of value. Like, it was insane. And by the way, Ovechkin scored his 802nd goal, becoming the second time leading goal scorer of all time. And I was there, like, it's just amazing, right? And then in addition to that, it was an all-you-could-eat buffet to this lounge. So in between the periods, you go run, it's called the Laton, you know, like you run, you get more popcorn. And, and man, I picked out, it was awesome. It was awesome, but how did I get that? I was just minding my own business. I don't even remember the day, but somebody, there was a call. Ian had purchased something. Ian had something, and Ian made a choice. And he says, I know that guy always talks about hockey. I don't know anybody else who loves hockey, 
I don't know, sorry, you know, if you're here. Uh, I'm calling him. He's coming with me. That's how I got the blessing, is who I knew. It's who, who, it's who kind of initiated that. I just, I just received, I just answered the phone, and I got to go and experience that which was already purchased, that which was already laid out, that which was glorious. That's how I got in. There's nothing to do. I mean, I just, I just got a phone call, right? And that leads me to our next point, verses four through five. And disclaimer, I will get to all the questions you guys are wrestling with. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Let me lay out the argument, and then we'll get into the questions. The simple argument Paul's making, the Ephesian believers belong to Jesus because he chose them. Well, when was that, Paul? Was that when you came? to Ephesus, and, and you preached the gospel, and you made disciples, and then they made a choice to repent and believe? Was it, was it once they made that choice, then, then God chose them? Well, Paul says, I'm just preaching God's word to you, by the way, okay? And we'll get to all the questions. So Paul says, no, God chose you all before you were even born, before there was breath in your lungs to, so that you could make a profession of lordship, of Jesus, before there was even breath to breathe, before there was even oxygen in the air, before there was even air, before there was even time, before the earth even existed, God has had his eyes on you. Before we talk about all the questions, we need to hone in on the magnitude of God's love. It says, in love, the text says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. In eternity past, Paul is writing to the church, the believers at Ephesus. In eternity past, man, God's had his eyes on you. God's had his gaze on you. Firmly fixed. That's how far back our relationship with God goes. That's how vast his love is for us. Now, commercial break. I know it's really silent in here. I know this is a tough doctrine to kind of swallow of, uh, election, and then we get into all the debate of Arminianism versus Calvinism and uh, man's sovereignty, or not man's sovereignty, don't strike me with lightning up here, Lord, uh, God's sovereignty and man's free will, right, and how do those play out? This is something that, I don't know if I've ever met a believer who hasn't wrestled with this. This is hard. I've wrestled with it my entire life, right, and I probably will. We're going to get to that in a second, but it raises a ton of questions. If the game is rigged, how can God be just? Right? What about my kids? Are they chosen? I know I am. What about my kids? What about my neighbors? What about the lost? Why should we even go evangelize if God, if the game's already set up and rigged? How can we, I know in the scriptures that we're all going to have to stand before the judge of the living and dead and give an account for our lives. If everything's predetermined, how can I be held accounts for my free decisions? Right? And so that's the wrestling match that we have with this doctrine. Three things. Three things I want to hone in on. One, if you're taking notes, Let's check our hesitancy. Secondly, let's embrace the, ministry, the, the mystery. And thirdly, let's celebrate the beauty. So first thing is this. Let's check our hesitancy. This, is, this applies to everything that we don't kind of necessarily like in regards to theology. Is we have to be very careful picking what we believe based upon what we like. We call this kind of made-to-order theology. I like this, therefore it has to be true. And if not, I'll find a way to make it true, 
right? And so therefore, we do that in a myriad of ways, and therefore, we don't let the Bible speak for itself. We don't let God reveal what he's like, and then we just craft a, we, we, we craft a God in our own image. So I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this, and God's saying, this is who I am. And so we're not necessarily supposed to like certain things, we're supposed to believe them. And trust that God is good. And, and if you dive into the Greek here, the good news is that if you dive into the Greek, and when it says that he chose, what that word means in the Greek is that he chose. And if you dive into the Greek, it's not, it doesn't get better for you. It's where we get the word elect. The elect, election, the doctrine of election. It's where we get the, our, our, our English term for, you look up the, the English definition of choose, it means to select, to pick out, to choose. And so what I'm getting at is this is a matter of divine revelation before it's a matter of human speculation. Like this is what scripture is saying. I, when I say predestination, when I say God chose, I'm just reading Paul's letter. I'm reading that. So that's God's word. So, so, but secondly, there's a lot of debate of what that, that means and how that manifests. And that's where the tension lies, right? That's where the tension lies. So one, secondly, we need to embrace the ministry. Gosh, I said it again, sorry. The mystery, embrace the mystery. There is a mystery here. And I went to um, Reformed Theological Seminary, which is Calvinist Presbyterian Seminary, and uh, I loved it. It was amazing, and I want to audit classes, and I want to honor them. It's great. And so I got, all, but anyways, what I'm getting at, what I'm sharing is this, is um, the president of RTS Washington, D.C. stood up in front of my class, and he said this. We were talking about this topic. This is a Calvinist, a Calvinist speaking. He goes, if anyone ever tells you that they have figured out how man's responsibility and God's sovereignty plays out, they're either lying to you or they have no clue what they're talking about. The, it's a Calvinist, the president of RTS. I, I saw it and I was like, I am writing that down, and that's amazing. Why? Why that tension? Because what we see is clearly Scripture articulates both of those ideas, Right? We are, we're reading a text that says um, uh, uh, we were chosen before the world began, but then we preach a gospel, the gospel that Jesus preached, the gospel that uh, Paul preached, where it's make a choice, repent and believe, turn to Jesus, give your life to him, surrender to him, respond to the gospel. There's a response that there's salvation for your sins in the cross of Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Lord. He's paid the penalty in full. Give your life to him. Turn from him. We see that clearly in scripture right? We see Jesus look at Jerusalem and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I would have gathered you under my wings, but you were not willing. Or Second Peter, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. So there's a tension here, right? There's a wrestling match. And so I'm not saying, like, like, I don't really care much about whether you're Calvinist or Arminian. I think either way, either in one of those camps, we just have to realize that there's a mystery here that we're not going to be able to figure out. John Stott says it this way. I love it. Didn't I choose God? Somebody asked indignantly, to which we must answer, yes, indeed you did, and freely, but only because in eternity God had first chosen you. Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election, and we should be aware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or rigidly. It is not likely that we shall discover a simple solution to a problem which has baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. That line is worth, that's, the, that's worth the price of admission right there on this topic, right? 
it's not like we're going to figure this thing out when it's baffled the best brains of Christendom for centuries. So what we do then is what my, the president of RTS told us. He says, you come to a cognitive rest where Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things, the hidden things, they belong to you. And I may never figure this. I might not even figure out how this works on the other side of glory. But you're God. I'm not. And so I yield. And then second thing I want to say is this. This is, here's my view. Here's my stance. God's sovereignty is his responsibility, not an excuse to punt on mine. Let me say that in case you missed it. God's sovereignty is his responsibility, not an excuse to punt on mine. When it comes to judgment day, I won't be held to account whether I was a Calvinist or a Minion, but how I stewarded the grace of God that was shown to me. And so uh, I will push back on anyone who punts the sovereignty and say, hey, we don't need to go out and share the hope of the gospel this afternoon. So I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you to go prayer walking with us, but what we can really get into, okay, why do I need to pray for anything? God will provide. Basically, you, it's just all determinist. God's a deist. It's all set up. So therefore, we're going to be a passive uh, church who's not going to passionately pursue Jesus and advancing his kingdom, right? It's not an excuse to punt on our responsibility of the crystal clear commands that Jesus has given us. Second thing I want to say is, so we check our hesitancy. Secondly, we embrace the, min- the, the mystery. But thirdly, we got to celebrate the beauty. There's beauty here. There's wonder here. There's excitement here. I think one of the, one of the most beautiful things, I'll hone in on just one implication here, is what we see with this is, is what we get with the doctrine of election is the assurance of our salvation for the believer. Assurance of our salvation. That I'm held fast in his hands and not just my own hands. John, don't take my word for it. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, watch this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So then the question with this text is, well, who holds your salvation? Whose hands are holding your salvation? Or let me state it this way, whose grip is tighter on your salvation? God's grip or your grip? Whose grip is tight? We see with Paul's story, the Apostle Paul in verse 1 of our text, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. By the will of God. You go, you go to Acts and you see how, how, did Paul, how did Paul become, when did Paul choose Jesus? Right? Paul would never share his testimony that way. So I was on the road to Damascus. I was about to murder a bunch of Christians. I heard the gospel preached, so I, got, I went down on the floor, and then I gave my life to Jesus because I'm so smart. No, no, no. I got, the Lord had to blind Paul. And knock him to the ground and, sh- and, and call him, right? It was by the will of God. Salvation found Paul. Christ found Paul, not the other way around. Paul had his, his whole life goal set, man. He was going to do the Pharisee of Pharisee things, persecute the church, live a life of political prowess and, 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 and maybe wealth and, and status and all that stuff. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for my sake. And so if, what I'm getting at is this, and then we'll move on to the third point. If it is God's choice in eternity past, then it's sealed. It's secure. It's final. And the reason I share that is pastorally. One of the biggest things that I see kind of eating the church alive is fear of losing your salvation. So I want to hone in on this, right? 
is because the, the, the presupposition of that is that my salvation is, is, is in my, my feeble, fickle hands. And that, should, that thought should terrify us, right? But Jesus says in John 10, no, your salvation lies in your Father's hands. And yes, the scriptures say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but all the while knowing that it's him who's working in and through you. That he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion, right? And um, man, I, I busted out, I think, three hockey references this sermon. Here's the third, all right? And that was not intentional. But uh, Sunday after the service, I took my three kids um, ice skating, public skating, um, for the first time. And I went with my, uh, my pops, and we went. And that was um, a great time, but it was also a huge mistake. There was like a thousand people who were skating with, with knives on their feet. And I had my kids who've never, and there's, it's, it, we're playing, you know, zone defense, all this stuff. But I, I had my little man who's two the entire time. He had his little skates, his hockey gloves, his helmet, and his Caps jersey. And uh, imagine if you've ever skated before, imagine you go public skating, but you bring like a 40-pound sandbag with you, <laughs> and you just hold it like this the entire time. Oh my gosh, it was, it was crazy, a like great leg workout. And so for an hour and a half, my little man, I'm holding, I'm holding him. But the whole time he thinks he's holding on to me. And, he's, and, and, and repeatedly, I have to take a break, I hold him, and the skate guard, you have to put him down, you can't hold him, you know, all this stuff. And anyways, but I just had to take a break, I couldn't, I was, I was huffing and puffing. And so I, I, I hold him and I go, hey man, like, this is his first time skating, there's lots of big people going by really fast with sharp blades on their feet, all this stuff. And I would, I would expect to see him scared. I would expect to see him frightened. Um, instead, he was yamming it up. He was happy as a clam. It was amazing. I was like, you want to keep going? Yeah. So then, then he goes, and I hold him up, and he's, you know, he's doing his thing. He's flailing. He's laughing. He's, he's doing his best. He's trying to, to be like his nephew, RJ, who plays hockey. He's giving all he has. But there isn't fear there. He's not looking at his hands. Oh, am I, am I held now? Am I not held now? He's, he's enjoying the abiding with his father. He's enjoying the relationship with his father, father and son, holding up. Yes, he was holding on to me. Yes, there's absolutely that mystery there, but what's clear in scripture are also countless verses that say that God's got your salvation in his hands and that frees us up from nail-biting and worrying, knowing that if he's chosen me before the foundation of the world, he's gonna bring that thing through to completion. He's not going to say, oh man, I made a mistake in eternity past and, you, and, and your, your stats this week aren't that good and so now I'm dropping you. I'm unadopting you. That's not, that's not how adoption works. He's predestined us for adoption. He didn't draft us on a team and when, we're, when we have really good stats and we're hitting our metrics, then we're good. No, he's adopted you. And the second implication is this. He has full knowledge of you. Full knowledge of you. He has more knowledge of you than you have knowledge of you. And I'm talking all the bad stuff, all the thoughts, all the secrets, all of that stuff. That's the fullness of his knowledge. He's omniscient. And in eternity past, knowing all of that about you, he still chose you. Knowing the mistakes you would make, right? The sins you would struggle with, the doubt you would struggle with, nothing can surprise him. So even if you're like, oh, but what if I, what if I, what if I? Yeah, he, he chose you knowing all that, Right? So we can't stay here too long. I got to keep going on. But my hope is that this encourages you. And my question that I want you to, to maybe wrestle with is this, is, is where does the hope of my salvation lie? Because do I just have faith in my faith? Or do I have faith in a God who securely grabbed me and nobody can snatch me out of his hands? Where is my salvation, the security of my salvation lying? Okay.
Thirdly and lastly, we sing to him because we're blameless before him. We see the end goal of God's choice, of his selection is this, is even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That word holy is set apart. When talking about uh, the saints at Ephesus, it means that those are the ones that have been set apart for him. Those who belong to God, consecration, devotion. And so that's holiness and blameless, holy and blameless. Blameless is without blemish, perfectly pure and spotless. And so what we see is that this reality for the believer of holy and blameless is both a position and a process. Theologians talk about the difference between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Progressive meaning that it progresses over time. Okay, it's just all this. So definitive and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification being this. Upon profession of faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are blameless, you are made holy, you're justified. You're declared righteous by God. And progressive sanctification is you and you becoming more and more what you already are in Christ Jesus. It's you and you becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. Now when we use these words holy and blameless, but we divorce them from a relationship with Christ, we immediately start talking about rules and it leads to self-righteousness. There's lots of baggage with the word holy and blameless. And we, we separate it from this covenant, this relationship, and then we just try to go obey all these rules so I can be holy. And then we look down on everyone who doesn't uh, live up to our holiness metrics. Like, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking through all these fundamentalist things that parents tell their kids not to do. <laughs> so I'm not going to say them because um, I'm that parent. Um, I lost myself in my notes. And so when we do that, it becomes all about us and not about Jesus. It becomes all about rules and not love. And Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So therefore, in the context of that, when we talk about true holiness and blamelessness, what if, it's a lot of things, but what if primarily, what if that word is about the increase of the purity of your love and devotion towards Jesus Christ? What if without blemish or being blameless means this, there's no longer anything diluting the strength and purity of your passion for the Lord? Because what sin is, sin is a lot of things, but one of the things sin primarily is, is sin is anything that dilutes our devotion to Christ. Anything that hinders our love and our communion and our fellowship with him. Anything that dilutes the devotion. I'm a huge, ho- uh, not hockey, I am a huge hockey fan. I'm a huge coffee fan. And if you were to err on the side of um, weak coffee or strong coffee, you always err on the side of making it too strong rather than too weak. Because there's nothing more disgusting. Sorry, for, amen. There's nothing more disgusting than coffee that's been diluted. Right, it's been watered down. You put some ice cubes in there for some reason. And now that's weakened it, and then a ton of, no no offensive, I I drink coffee black because you realize you're drinking really good coffee. You don't need to add anything else to it, okay? So you got your sugar, you got your creams, you got your pumps of classic, you got your cinnamon, you got your whipped cream. There's all these additives. So you lose the purity of what that really is. And that's what sin is. It's all these additives that dilute our devotion to the Lord. And what we see the reason, one of the reasons we sing to Jesus is we see the activity that Je- we sang about it this morning that Jesus has for his bride. 
that yes, he sanctified us, but yes, he's actively by the Spirit, constantly at work, removing the impurities, removing the sins, removing the obstacles, removing the additives, so that there's coming a time when we will truly one day be completely pure and blameless before him. And band, you can come on up. I'll close with Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Um, In Ephesians 5, later on in Paul's letter to the saints at Ephesus, we see him talk about marriage. And what does he say about marriage? He talks about how it, it models the gospel. It, it, it screams of the love that Jesus has for his church. And this is what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We sing to him because we're blameless before him. And and how did we get this status of being cleansed, of being washed? How did the filth, how did the dirt get removed? And how is it being removed? It's all the work of Jesus on our behalf. John 13, the upper room putting the towel around his waist, taking on the form of a servant, he goes to the disciples' feet and he washes their nasty, stinky man feet. And he goes toe by toe, foot by foot. This Jesus, this is the posture of Jesus to you today if you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is constantly at work, towel around his waist with the water basin, constantly at work in your life, active by the Spirit, washing you, cleansing you, bringing conviction, saying, that doesn't bring joy. Turn to me. That's his heart towards us. So to summarize the message is this before we break out in song and celebrating communion, is all of this is about the undeserving, radical, generous activity of God towards undeserving sinners in Christ Jesus. And where all this amazing truth is of God's generosity towards us in the Son leads us to verse 6, which closes our text. It leads to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. To the praise of his glorious grace. And so today, as we posture our hearts to take communion and sing to our Lord, let's reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And the hope that we have. Let's not take the hope we have in Jesus for granted. Let's not take the salvation. Let's not take the forgiveness. Let's not take his presence, his guidance. Let's not take the active work of Jesus by the Spirit sanctifying us for granted. And let's respond with all that activity of God towards us in his son with praise saying, Thank you, God. The God of the universe is radically for me in his son. He's radically with me in his son and I will be with him forever, all because of what Jesus has done to someone who doesn't deserve it. So let's pray, and then we'll celebrate communion. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the feast with you at the table, we come with grateful hearts today, God. How else could we come? You say, enter your courts with thanksgiving, with praise. So that's the the sacrifice of, of praise we bring to you today. Is that you're the God who prepares the table 
for us. You're the God who, who gave that which was most precious to him, the highest price that could be paid. Everything that heaven could give has been given. That's what we celebrate with communion. Is the God, the Father, who has held nothing back, but has given us that which is most precious to him. And if we receive that Christ, we have everything we need in life forever. So help us, God, see you rightly. Fan into a flame, Lord God, again, uh, uh, affections that have grown dull and apathetic towards you. Turn our affections from being in Ephesus to, to, to replace it, Lord. Reroot it, reground it in you, Jesus, and belonging to you. So come, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for the gift of your presence. We thank you for breath in our lungs to praise you. We thank you that you've called us. You've brought us here this morning. You knew this day was coming. You knew the people that would be seated here. You pulled up a chair with their name on it. Nobody's here by accident this morning. That's the kind of God you are. It's all real. And none of this is an accident. You set it up. You prepared the feast. You sent out the invites. And I pray by the Spirit, anyone here who, who, who hasn't said yes to that call to come and feast with you, they would do it today. Something would resonate in their heart. And they say, I want to know you, God. I need you in my life. Cleanse me from my sins. Anything that separates me from you, God, place it on the shoulders of Jesus as a sacrifice for my sins. I want to be right with you, God. Make that decision now. The scriptures say, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Give your life to God. He's real and he's really good. He's really generous. He's really kind. Don't hold back. Your life depends upon it. God's given everything he can. He's given everything he can to you. What will the response be this morning? So Lord, we thank you. You're mighty, you're worthy of our eternal praise, you're worthy of our songs, and your praise, Lord, let it ever be on our lips, for you alone are worthy. Thank you, God. We love you. We bless your name. And all the saints said, amen.